Welcome to Table Talk, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the dynamic and exciting restaurant world. We sit down with industry leaders as they share best practices, highlight smart solutions, and discuss strategies for growth, ultimately helping food service operators learn how to affect positive change and grow their business. Now, here is your host, editor and publisher of Food Service and Hospitality Magazine, Rosanna Kyra. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome Matt Rolfe to the Table Talk podcast. Matt is a coach, speaker, and entrepreneur who mentors the top 10% of the hospitality industry in unlocking their true potential. With a primary focus on personal development, he enables high-performing leaders to build unified teams and effectively delegate responsibilities for maximum growth. He's the founder of Results Hospitality and West Shore Hospitality Group, where he has worked with hundreds of leadership teams throughout North America. Beginning his career with companies like Bacardi and Labatt, Anheuser-Busch, Matt is an industry expert dedicated to helping leaders examine the human element of their business and execute effective team building strategies unique to their needs. Good morning, Matt, and welcome to Table Talk. Good morning, thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. I know we've been trying to connect on this for a while, so uh, it's a new year, and uh, and hopefully it's a good one. So um, we're really thrilled to have you with us this morning. Absolutely, grateful to be here. So um, I thought we could start today with, uh, I guess, understanding a little bit of your career trajectory and and where you started and um, and how you got into this interesting field. I don't know that anybody grows up saying I want to be. Uh, you know, a leadership coach, um, but I'm sure there's a lot of circumstances that uh, took you on this journey. So why don't we hear a little bit about that? Absolutely. And I'll try to keep it short, but it is, uh, it's a fun story for me. It was something that I never imagined I'd see myself doing as a, as a kid, um, as a going through public school and high school, I was someone who was diagnosed with a learning disability. And if anybody remembers, I was really put in those learning strategies classes where there were small groups, six to eight kids, and just really pushing through the school system. I got to high school, and I still remember the conversation really vividly of the guidance counselor saying, I really recommend that Matt, this talking to my parents, goes and gets alternative employment. And there's a good chance that he's not going to make it through high school. And I was a scrappy young person based on where I grew up, and I took that to heart and really started to double down on my studies. But I went out and looked to find work. And as I tried to fight my way through school, what really helped me was I found the hospitality industry. I found people that weren't going to judge me based on how you know, the school environment was looking at me at that time, but people that were willing to invest in me, um, you know, put me through a lot of hard work, teach me how to work hard. Um, but I kind of tripped over and fell hospitality, found hospitality where it found me. And then coming through college, uh, at just barely 19 years old, I was actually 18. I never want to tell Bacardi this. I got my first job uh, with Bacardi as a summer rep and fell in love with the supplier side of the industry. Uh, so at the time of just before 19 through to about 25, I worked for Bacardi, then Labatt, and becoming an interviewer in Anheuser-Busch and got exposure to hundreds of operators across Ontario. And the thing for me was they were selling, they were on my top 10 list in my territories or district for selling beer. But when I met with the owners, they were sitting in their back offices, often with a cigarette in their hand, or unfortunately, sometimes a drink, saying, I just can't get the numbers for it. So through one of my uh, partners at the time, one of the people that I called on, introduced us to a company from Australia that was helping restaurants increase profit. And we could go into a restaurant and find $100,000 to put to the bottom line within 12 months, some of the top operators. 
And I soon left Labatt, which was a dream job as a 25-year-old to start a start a business in North America. Um, so we worked on process consulting for about five, seven years, uh, helping really focus on profitability. But what I found is we weren't coaching inventory. We weren't just coaching guest service, coaching behavior change. And then about a decade ago, really started to work on engaging with the leadership team, supporting them to get clear, help them with their development so they can really scale their restaurant groups. So that's a little bit of a summary of how I found becoming a leadership coach in the industry. And it's been an incredible experience ever since. Well, that sounds like a really uh, great story with the history that you just shared with us. And it just goes to show you that uh, when you're determined and, and you really have a focus, and as you said, maybe we were a little scrappy and it really pushed you to, to do better. And it also speaks to how many people really get their start in hospitality. Um, you know, so many people come through this industry um, and, and start at the bottom and work their way up. So I think those are all great lessons for people uh, listening to this today. 100%. And the scrappy side is something that's still written on the walls of our office. It's still something written in my home office. It's, that's why fighting through COVID, it's, you know, the scrappy thing still sticks with me. If I could tattoo it without looking silly, I'd have it on my chest. <laughs> uh, now it's, it's as relevant for me now as it was, you know, sitting in that office in grade nine. It, it's time for us all to be a bit scrappy and fight, fight our way through this to the other side. For sure, for sure. Um, so it's hard to have any conversation these days without touching on COVID because it's really taken over all of our lives for the last 20 20- two, three months. And um, I'm interested in knowing how that affected you and your job specifically, and also in your personal life, because I think it's impacted us in all, you know, in very unique ways. But what did COVID do for your business? Because, you know, so many operators were now having to force themselves to do things either differently or to take a pause to some degree. So what did that mean for you? I think up front is to, to share some vulnerability. And this is one thing we worked with our, the people I coach and also just the people I interact with is COVID was an incredibly difficult time. I'm somebody who spends all my days in boardrooms, you know, on airplanes, getting a chance to work with great people. And COVID really took away connection and community for me. So I really struggled. I love the, the ability that Zoom brought us to stay engaged and stay connected. And I think we could still use it. Uh, but I found myself where I lost my identity a little bit. I think a lot of hospitality leaders and entrepreneurs can connect with this. My value was driven on me bringing new value or people I work with. And that was taken away. My perception was that was taken away a bit. So um, I really worked through that with my coach. Um, it challenged me to, to be more creative, to think differently about my business, because how my coaching business, how our consulting business operated prior to COVID, it doesn't exist anymore. And there was a period of time where we, it was really hard and we had to let go of who we were and think about what, what do we need to re, redesign to be relevant three to five years from now. So um, there was a period where it was hard and it was the darkest point in my career. It was hard on my personal life. It was hard on my marriage. And, and, and I'm assuming a lot of people can relate to that. I just want to be real. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a certain point where it's okay for it not to be okay. But then how do we get moving again? How do we reset ourselves? And we were able to redesign um, a more scalable business where we can work virtually with significantly more leaders. Um, we were able to refocus on where we wanted to be. Uh, and I'm really at this stage right now, you know, two weeks into, three weeks into January, 2022, I'm more excited about the opportunity for our clients, but also more excited about the opportunity for our team um, than I've probably ever been, um, which is surprising to me. I didn't think that we would be here this quickly. 
So can you give us maybe a couple of examples of how you had to change your focus? What did you do differently or what did you um, zero in and on as the pieces that had to be changed significantly? Sure. And I, I think the one fear for all of us is has the market shifted? What changed in the market? And, and what we did is we went through an exercise of, um, and this is one thing we take our clients through, because the perception with COVID is that the industry has significantly changed. Well, there's an exercise of what has actually changed and what has stayed the same. So how do we how do we leverage it? So what we had to change with was leveraging virtual. The one thing that I know, if there's one thing we leave with operators, leaders, or leadership teams is success right now is based on the foundation of our ability to communicate and communicate consistently and stay engaged with our people as we're starved for connection and community. So what I had to change is how we communicated virtually um, and how we engaged with our clients and really framing that for them so they still saw value. Um, we had to let go of some, some services that we supplied prior to COVID that no longer served our direction. It was going to take time and attention. So if we put that in the context of a restaurant operator, was there something you were doing pre-COVID that worked for you, but based on the amount of time and the, the return on time or return on investment, do you still want to go down that track? And there's a, there's a service that I love and it's a passion project for me, but based on our internal strategy sessions, we had to, we had to let that go so we could really focus on where we're going. And then what, what I've always dreamed of is bringing a, a pure community to the restaurant industry. So how do we create a space, a confidential space for industry leaders to come together and share? And that really is what we, COVID provided us, the pandemic provided us the time to really shape that program so we could roll it out in 2022. So um, we had to let go of what we were holding on to from the past and really step into who we wanted to become moving forward. And, and Matt, how many people work with you in your company? Is it a small group or do you have a large team? Between the two companies, uh, depending on scale to part time, we've got between 30 and 40 um, yeah. at different times. Uh, through COVID, we fought really hard to keep all of our full-time team. Um, our team has contracted. With the announcement we're hoping coming, I don't want to jinx anything, but uh, there's calls this afternoon where we are we're really excited to ramp back up. Um, but we would hope by midsummer again, we'd be between the 35 and 40 mark. Um, a lot of those working in our process consulting side, but also... The exciting part for me as a coach is I stepped out of the CEO role in my business a couple of years ago, so I can do this um, and let people do what they're best at. Like, right. So, you James is best to lead my business, but um, we've got a team that can allow us to really drive forward. Well, that's fabulous. And let's hope, um, you know, the announcement later is, yeah. is just what the industry needs. So I, I think over the last year, we've, we've had a lot of discussion about the industry and how decimated it's been due to the pandemic and how it really has changed, you know, the operational structure of this entire industry across the country. Um, much of the discussion really has centered on the fact that this business model, you know, hasn't been working for a long time. And I think the pandemic really uh, shone the light on that. And I think now more people are, are saying that even when, you know, they may have known it in the past, but they weren't really talking about it, but it's really come out full force in the past year. So, you know, we all know, and we've all heard profit margins are low. Operators have to deal with a lot of challenges on a daily basis. Um, as someone who works so closely with operators to try to get them to refocus and, and to break out of their, um, their limitations, how do you feel about that? Do you think the industry is broken? And, and realistically, what needs to be done to fix it? I know that's the million dollar question, but uh, from your perspective, what do you see? 
I think the one thing in what you said there was was brilliant and exactly what I share with my, with my clients is what I say is that COVID magnified pre-existing issues that already existed in our industry. And I, I want to be polite, but I want to put a bit of pressure on, on our leaders to be like, we had increasing costs pre-COVID. We had the, we had 120% annual staff turnover for the average location. You know, we've had profit in the average restaurant. You know, if we look at numbers that are produced for Canada, the average restaurant making less than 5%, many provinces making less than 3.5% profitability. These are pre-COVID realities. And what happened through the pandemic is it magnified it. And that could be a challenge for some, but it can also be an opportunity for others to say, okay, this is our reality. What are we going to do about it? And I don't, I think about you know, our industry and I don't think it's, it's broken because I have clients that through the pandemic and pre-pandemic make 12, 15, 20 plus percent net profit you know, on yeah. tens of millions of dollars in revenue. So um, the broken side, I think is the average, but there's an ability by design to, to design a hospitality operation, independent coffee shop to national chain with intention. So how do we build a business model, a revenue model that's sustainable and scalable? But I think the one thing COVID taught us is the profitability, uh, revenue figures, cost targets are a result of human behavior, the result of consistent human action that delivers a result. So if we want to redesign our business in a post-COVID world, it's really what are the behaviors, the patterns, and the habits of our leaders that are going to produce our desired results? And we might have to go back to our business plans. I have 30 Excel spreadsheets in my on my laptop that say I should be sitting on a beach right now and on my yacht that didn't work out. So those are over exaggerated <laughs> business plans. Um, so we got to go back and we have to be honest. And I think some operators are going to need, I'm coaching a lot of really great teams right now to be, let's be really realistic about 2022. Because there's a chance your business might break even or lose money. But if it sets you up for success in the long term, that's a great thing. But mm -hmm. if we know we're going to lose money, but we don't get alignment on it, we're going to be back in our weekly, monthly, and quarterly meetings, bringing tension and breaking our culture because we haven't actually aligned on, on the outcome that we've designed. So I think the piece for us is how do we, if it's broken, how do we fix? But how do you build a business that's clear on how you win this year? So you touched on a word earlier when you were describing that, and it's behaviors. You know, you need to change some behaviors. What are some of the key behaviors that you think really need to be dramatically uh, altered in order to move forward in this new landscape? Um, prior to the pandemic, we held a, a workshop similar to the some that you do. So we had 200 leaders in a room and some of the top operators in the country, all the celebrity leaders or national chains. And about four hours in, I asked a question once we had some trust in the room. I said, who would be willing to stand up and share um, if they feel that their team knows exactly how they win? And these are some of the best operators. And you know, the group, and they, the group knows each other. It is a safe space, and not one person was able to stand up and say, "Here's the definition definition of success." The Leafs know what success looks like this year. Um, you know, the Raptors know what success looks like a couple of years, maybe not this year, but we know what it looks like. But I think one of the things is how do we create clarity for our teams so they know to put energy in a certain direction? Because uh, my biggest fear is leaders have one expectation or owners, um, and when it's not met, although managers are working very hard. Other area, there's this disconnection of intention or disconnection of result. Uh, the other side is the culturally, is our industry has consistently over decades recognized what went wrong. So if we want to shift to the people side, it's how do we build a recognition focused culture? So rather than say when we did 200 covers, five didn't go perfectly, let's course correct those five. How do we go to our staff and our leaders as they 
back into the space and start to recognize great. So when good shows up, that's what we put our focus and attention into to start to reward and support our people because a lot of us are really missing community and connection now, some repeating language here, but how do we build a positive recognition-based culture? I mean, that all sounds great, and it's so hard to do for so many leaders, as you say, like, where do you start? Um, and, and I guess the pandemic is a good starting point now because there's been some time and pause. Um, it's given us pause to think about these systems a little bit more. But if I were um, an operator coming out of this time right now, where would you say I would need to start to focus my attention on in order to change that mindset of, of the company? And that's what I'm most excited about coming on this podcast. I know that you, you would push me a bit, right? So that it all sounds great. But if you can't make it a reality, like we can, we can write books, we can do talks, but if people can't execute the strategy, then it's just, it's more, it actually makes the leaders feel more guilty than it helps them. But I think really where this needs to start, um, you know, a lot of people think, well, what do my staff need to do differently? What does my frontline need to do differently? What do my managers need to do differently? I, I had a conversation with an incredible leader and friend who was recently on your podcast and last week. And I said, where we, where we need to continue to restart and refocus and the leaders on self. In order to take care of others, we need to take care of ourselves. So are we clear on how we support, how are we in service of our leaders? So the most senior people in an organization, it's like, how do we flip the pyramid as we've all, all heard, but we're in support of our people. But if we want to lead, we've got to get clear on where we're going. We've got to get clear on our energy. Uh, one of my coaches and favorite people on the planet is Tony Robbins. So I spent weeks in the room with Tony Robbins, and he said 70% of our results, and those that know or don't, he's the top motivational speaker for the last 30 years on the planet. And he's constantly saying, so Matt, what changes people's results is 70% of results are driven by our physical state. Interesting, that high. And he is and he is the most aggressive man I've ever met, but <laughs> working through some very strong strategies. But he says 70% are driven by our physical state, how we consistently show up. And even in a non-verbal way, 20% is on why. Why does this matter? Why do we care? Excuse my language, why should people give a shit about this? And once we have that, then then the strategy. Most people, the Excel template's not going to get us there. Um, the one-page strategic plan needs to be documented, but it's not what's going to change behavior or the result. So I think for us is how, how do we get right? And the last thing I'll say is you need to give, you need to be consistent for your team to buy in. So often leaders will come in in a new year and be like, new me, new us, let's charge forward. But the staff haven't healed from COVID yet. Staff haven't recovered. It's not you that they've had challenge with, but how do you reset yourself? And you need to give, we need to be consistent for 90 days before we really expect our staff to believe and buy into where we're going. And that's hard for, it's hard for me because I want my team to buy it as soon as I've got a new idea. But if we have, if we have a consistent commitment, once we are consistent, especially through such a traumatic time, then we'll build momentum through the rest of our team and people. But it starts at the top and goes down. It doesn't start at the middle or at the top of the staff. Interesting. So really leaders need to look inward a lot more and to, to really examine what they're doing and how they're doing it. Um, to, to be successful. I, I know that one of the outcomes of the pandemic uh, that has been very serious over the last two years is the, um, the mass exodus of people working in this industry that are now leaving it for whatever reason. Um, and again, the pandemic shone a light on some of the, the problems that, uh, that were out in the industry. And, um, you know, I was talking to, to a chef the other day and, and it, it's amazing the number of chefs that are now saying, I don't want to do this anymore, right? And they're taking a leave and either 
for a short time or for, you know, forever to leave the industry. This is going to be a huge problem for this industry in terms of the exodus of people. How can the industry be doing differently to ensure that uh, they retain those people or that they can attract others into the industry? Um, because without, obviously, without employees here, there is no industry. So, so what do we need to do on that front um, to do a better job of not only, you know, hiring people, but retaining them? Because that's the key. A lot of people come through the industry. We all know that, right? You yeah. know, young students, part-time job, full-time job. But the problem is a lot of people also leave the industry. So how do we balance that out? What's the key? And I spent the 10 years of my coaching career with this probably at the core. So how do we attract and retain people? And we recently put a poll up on LinkedIn and we had thousands of views and, and um, survey answers. And it was what's more important, attracting or retaining? Most people want to say both, but it's trying to force uh, them. And 70% of people came back and said retention is the number one focus for this year. So the one thing, we've got lots of tactics and things that we'll, we'll share as we share with you to get more information to the audience. But I think it really starts with what's, what's our retention strategy. And we could sit through Zoom or you could sit in your boardroom or sit in your office um, and build your retention strategy. But I think the first step is really creating a group, uh, what I like to call a slice team, uh, people in different positions in, in your restaurant as an independent coffee shop could be two people. If it's a large, it could be 12 people sitting in a group discussing what, what do our people want and need? What do they want and need, number one, to feel supported? What do they want, in, uh, number two, to feel safe? And what do they want and need to feel that they're, they're going to be invested in and developed? Because what's happening is other suppliers are, are dangling, or companies or industries are dangling carrots about what that looks like. And sure, there's some benefits, but I can tell you it's not necessarily better over there. We get a chance to interact with a lot of companies. It might sound a little better. But I think the first thing is supported, safe, and then what people want. There's the Gallup organization does a study every year, eight, eight business sectors, a million people per business sector. And every year it comes back that what people want after their base financial needs are met. So after we can pay rent, you know, have a little bit of entertainment and live our life, what we want is the ability to grow and develop. As humans, we're designed to want to grow and develop. So what they want from their employment is the ability to see whether it's developing their roles, some people want to go up and you have to have those sort of conversations. Some people just want to grow in their position. But if we don't have an opportunity for people to see a future in hospitality, pre-COVID, and especially right now, somebody else will draw a picture or paint an opportunity that's going to attract them to the other side. And I couldn't agree more. I think a year ago, our biggest concern, my biggest concern was management retention. Um, I am fearful, and I want to say that strongly with some inflection there. I'm fearful that if we don't have a retention an attraction strategy for front and back house staff. We will have our industry reopen at 60, 70% capacity when this comes spring in Canada. And it's already happening, as you know, and as you can see in different parts of the country, right? Yes. So I think it's how do we you know, how do we build that retention strategy first? Because I always say let's let's focus on the base we have. because um, but the, the instinct is let's go attract. But if we're if we're not taking care of the people we have, we just have turnover with the existing team and we're we're continuing to pump people in. And I'll show the, the, the industry average turnover pre-pandemic from my research and studies I've been able to do in Canada is 100 to 120% annual staff turnover. So your GM might have stayed for seven years, but your AGM and your bar manager continues to turn two, three times a year. It's right. the largest expense not measured on a P&L for most restaurants. 
So it's, I think the natural inclination for a lot of people is to say, we need to pay better. And I think that is true. The industry does need to pay better. And I think they're getting around that concept uh, finally these days. However, I've also talked to a lot of leaders in the industry who are saying that, you know, increasing the wages isn't always the only thing that's important because it's not always about wages. And sometimes it's about what, you know, what you were talking about earlier, but it's also about, about corporate culture and, you know, what it feels like to work for a certain company. How important do you think culture is in the, um, in the, um, in the race to, to retain people? It, it, from what I get to look behind the curtain on, I think over time, so once we get through the three to six months hiring phase with leaders, employees, and teams, if we don't have a positive culture, so we can move our GM salaries to $120,000 a year. If we're taking all the time away from their friends and family, and there's not balance, not consistent direction, and there's reprimand rather than recognition and reward, we're going to continue to force turnover. And there's some great restaurants in Canada that continue to turn over senior management based on the, the models broken. So I think the side for this is when it comes to culture, it's how do we design, how do we make it sure that it's upfront? And if you look at um, success leaves clues, if you see, if you're as, if you go into a retail operation or you go into a restaurant that you like and you love to model, take a look at what's driving that, what's driving success. And most, most of the time, it's culture. Starbucks spends more money on their people than they do on coffee. It's like, and that's a stat of people, and it's a US-based model that drives the, those statistics and benefits. But if we wanna, sometimes we have to take ourselves outside of our four walls. If we're a supplier, rather than increasing wages from decreasing costs, it's a race to the bottom. So the suppliers that fight on price race to the bottom, if we just fight on wage, we're just gonna stack on top of each other. And it's not necessarily at one point, it's gonna give because profitability of the restaurant can't it. So probably wages aren't going to get you there uh, long-term, short-term. They'll help you attract. Right. Uh, three to six to 12 months, I'm not sure they're going to help you retain if the culture's moving. So for those companies like Starbucks, who you mentioned, um, what would you say if you had to synthesize it into three areas of their corporate culture that is really um, successful for them? What would those three areas be? Is it... Um, is it job flexibility? What do you think those three areas are? I think that those are going to shift for our industry. So we had a chance to, to get a little bit of exposure to Starbucks, but I've, I've only had initial kind of keynote works with Starbucks and as president. But if we look to our, our restaurant, or what are what are the three key things? Um, is you know from our side is what what is going to drive it? I encourage us to ask because I can share, and I think some things is flexibility. Um, growth in your role. So how are we going to invest? And what does, so we, let's go back to flexibility. What does that look like for you? Um, so one of the groups, quick service groups that I'm working with, we had to create a new role based on scalability. 80% of the quick service business is done in about 12 hours a week. So we had to create a new hourly wage, a new expectation to attract people just to peak hours. And that, was, so, and that was around flexibility. So it was a different compensation model, different expectations, and it wasn't a long-term retention but what does flexibility look like for your people? And there's different industries. Some is they have seasonal volumes. So the expectation is you're going to make great money here, but we need you to have some flexibility in the winter, or it could flip. When it comes to growth and development, I think it's how are you going to invest in your people? And we talk about you know being having a clear plan. And what when I'm sharing a, a growth and development plan, 
what I'm doing when I'm designing with a client is I'm holding the senior leadership accountable to stay consistent. Because if I get a restaurant group to write out, we're going to have a quarterly workshop, if we're going to do a book club, if we're going to buy you some online courses or there's some incredible free online courses, we're going to keep space and time to develop yourself. And it's a commitment that makes sure that we stay the course. Because if you don't, it's going to cause um, concern for the staff. And then from our side is um, what's the recognition and reward outside of development? So what are we going to do to continue to support people, uh, have that environment culturally? Because I, you know, the, most of my study over the last 90 days has been, uh, we're a tribe, humans are tribe-based. You know, this, us not being in the four walls, me being in the four walls of the space right now is great, but what I really want to do is be sitting across from you in your office. So how do we recreate connection? And my concern is people are going to come back into the operation. So we go from working from home to working 50 hours a week, but we don't take the time to slow down and connect. And that looks differently for everybody. Um, but I can tell you how many times I've just sat with people and forced them to have a cup of coffee. I've had people to sit and have, have a beer and slow down when we were able to through the pandemic. And the staff being, it was just so nice you know, to slow down, to see you, to share. How's your family? How are you as a human? Uh, how are you ready to go do your job again? So as we move what in what appears to be a very slow way back into recovery, because it's taken so, so long, what do you think um, leaders now have to really focus on in this new operating environment post-COVID? Um, because, you know, it, it's we're all waiting for restaurants to come back in a big way, you know, with reopening and less fewer restrictions. But the road ahead is going to be a long and, and arduous one, I believe. It's not going to happen overnight to get back to where we were. So what would you recommend operators focus on as we start to move into that recovery mode? Yeah, I think it's um, one thing that we would talk about before, and people remember this language, you have, what's our three and five-year plans for our business? The five-year planning was really common even a few years ago, but that's where if you wanted to go to the bank, you needed a five-year plan. You know, I think a year right now, 18 months, it's, it's going to feel like five years, like the pace of change and challenge and what we're going through. So I think the first step is just making sure that we have clarity of what we're trying to do in the next 18 months to recover. What does recovery look like? Um, and most businesses, so 80% of restaurants go bankrupt in their first three to five years. They don't go bankrupt from a profitability standpoint. They go bankrupt from a cash flow perspective. You know, I have lots of restaurants. I've seen restaurants all over the country close their doors with full dining rooms. So it's just, what is the business plan of recovery? And I think it starts from number one, if I was working with anybody for the next six months, what's your cash flow position? Because we might need, we need to continue to reinvest depending on the support we continue to get or that you're getting or not getting now. But how do we have a plan that allows us to get through the next six months, work towards our next 18 months, and allows you to get to where you want to get to? Um, as an entrepreneur, I had to look at, we had to look at one of our business units as I shared and said, we can continue to do revenue here, but if there's not a return on time or return on investment, if you're designing a business that 18 months from now is going to serve your guests, pay your staff, but leave you with debt and risk as the owner or leadership team, Reevaluate how we change that now. Everything starts with intention. Once we have intention, then we can work to simple design. And then I think the key things are what are the three, what are the three focuses or drivers? And I don't want to get this stuff might sound practical in business, but I wish it's not the simplicity. What are the three things that I've done consistently and relentlessly every single week are going to drive you towards your goals? You can't have 40 hours a week to do it. If you invested eight hours a week into retention, if you invested eight hours a week into your delivery strategy to make sure it's scale and profitability, 
if you added that into growth of your operation. Eight hours a week, I promise that compound impact, like compound interest, will fundamentally change your business. So you need to identify what has the best return on time. And that's really where the planning starts. And then we can get into what people do. Where do we want to get to? What are the three drivers? If we can get that right, we multiply our chances of success. So it sounds like really the next three to six months are crucial in how businesses tackle the future. And it's not just... Uh, I mean, it's going to take a long time to recover from two years of, of this, you know, roller coaster ride we've all been on. Would you agree that the next three to six months are crucial for operators in, in terms of making that plan and of how they move ahead? Yeah, I think, you know, from my side, my biggest fear in all this, and we started sharing this podcast and, and our social media stuff, my biggest fear of this whole pandemic is right now. It is right between now and the next six months. Because you know we've recovered, there was some subsidies. The subsidies are going to go away. Our doors are going to That's reopen. That's right. Our staff, I can, and I say this completely respectfully, as my business has had to invest hundreds of thousands of dollars in investment to keep our staff here. So I, I understand the risk. We got to start to stand. We're going to have to continue to stand on our own. And how do we get there? And I think it is really looking at as a, a PL statement. Um, is when somebody showed me it's like a, a movie. We have to see if it actually happens. But right now it's cash flow. So. We have to turn food and beverage product into the optimal amount of retail dollars. So we got to control inventories. We got to have the right menu pricing. We have the right average tap. And turn food and beverage into the optimal amount of, of retail dollars and make sure we capture that cash flow. Because my biggest concern is hundreds, if not thousands of operators across the country are going to close in the next six months based on bank account going upside down. It's all about cash flow in the next six months. Yeah. yeah. That's, what's, that's what I'm most fearful of. Especially when those subsidies start to uh, peter out, right? And they have, like, for small business, right? They're, for restaurant, we've had a little bit more support. It hasn't been enough. But I'm hearing from the small business exposure that I have. Um, you know, wage subsidies at 20%, people are not making ends meet. And that's where we're going. That's right. Numbers right. Yeah. So, Matt, uh, you know, I think we've all learned that crisis sometimes is a really great way to spur innovation. And I think it was really heartening to see in the first uh, few months of the pandemic how resilient operators became and how they pivoted to new revenue streams. Um, what do you think um, are some of the innovations that we need moving forward? I mean, we all got through those two years with a lot of that pivoting, but do you think now the natural inclination is for operators to go back to what they were doing before? Or do you think they've now learned that Really, you know, reinvention is something that needs to happen on a regular basis uh, in this new world. Uh, what's your thought on that? I'm, I, and I'm, I'm proud, deeply proud of our industry and how people pivoted. And, and we all, you know, joke about the word pivot, but based on how often it was used in the pandemic. But there's been some remarkable innovation um, that we've seen. You know, I was in a grocery store the other day, and here in Toronto, saw the person in front of me had two frozen. Piano, piano pizzas, two frozen pizza, libretto pizzas, and there's uh, another brand in there. So, and they're out there in their own grocery. And that's a, that's right. a uh, really incredible what people have done on delivery, what people have done with their spaces is great. Um, the one thing that I recommend now that we've, that we've been forced through innovation is I often say innovation and technology is, is sexy. And the people selling it are sexy because it sounds great. And we have pain now, so we're looking for things to solve our pain. But what I ask my clients is, how do we ensure that the technology or innovation is in support of our goals? So we're, not, we're not investing in it just because of it is what it is. But if we get technology and innovation that is tied to where we want to go, 
and what we're looking to do is basically serving our intention and our goals, then we'll make sure that we don't put an inventory system in that doesn't work, or we don't double down on our own delivery platform. Or um, some of my quick service clients have gone to using their own delivery network and the marketing of their third-party delivery apps, which is something we started a conversation on four years ago with the, third, with the big third-party delivery companies, mm-hmm. their delivery network. So how do we continue to be flexible and leverage innovation and technology? Um, my opinion is I don't think delivery um, based on the, the scale and numbers is not going away. Um, the numbers out of the U.S. are, are just remarkable. Um, when we look at, I heard the other day that Loblaws is launching um, some restaurant, quick service restaurant space because the take-home market is, is $5 billion. So take-home prep products is a $5 billion industry. So if I'm a restaurant operator, I'm going, how do I get my, my piece? Because I, I would rather go to you, an easy, efficient takeout option than necessarily get it from Loblaws. Or I'd rather get you from Loblaws. No offense to Loblaws. I, I have no idea what they're doing. I think it's going to be great. But I still want the credibility of the restaurant. Um, so it looks to take home um, or take away third party delivery. Um, and I think there's some really good innovation now around just the technology in the space. Um, the one thing I would be looking at, depending on the design of your operation, is the um, how do we use technology to get to meet the needs of our guests inside the restaurant? How do we get product to the table quicker, more consistently, but don't take away the human being? Because why we go to restaurants is for connection and experience. It's not just to get product to a table where we can do it at home. But how do we allow more space and time for our staff, our frontline staff, our servers to create connection with the guest while using technology to automate and create efficiency to get product on tables? Um, how do we get that one extra dessert? How do we get those one extra drinks? That's we're in a game. I know pennies don't exist anymore, but our profitability is you know, 3.5%. We're playing pennies. The more average check increase, we can use technology to drive average check, whether it be in the kitchen or the front house. Um, I'd really look at it and see if it fits your goals and your plan. Are you worried that um, people who have now become accustomed to doing more takeout and the online being so convenient, the ghost kitchens coming on board in a stronger way, are you worried that now consumers may just say, you know what, I can just eat as well at home without going to a restaurant? Or, Or do you think we're just so hungry to get back out in the industry that we'll all be back in restaurants in no time? What's your thought? I think being Yugo, the first day that we can, the statistics show that there was still, um, and this is the US and Canada, and there's varying numbers, but there's still like 30% of the market. And it's some of the numbers as high as 50 that don't feel safe going back into restaurants yet. So I think that there's one thing is how do we create, um, how do we communicate safety to our staff first? Our staff need to feel safe or they'll turn over. We're seeing that. How do we, how do we continue? Don't forget that some large percentage of the population doesn't feel safe going out yet. And it's our opportunity. Make, make them feel safe. But when it comes to third-party delivery, and, and I highly respect the, the, those, those companies and they've helped us get here. But what I've seen that's gone away, when it started, people were writing handwritten notes. We were doing flyers to invite people back. Now it's just, I'm just getting, getting a Uber Eats or a DoorDash or Skip the Dishes product and, and a delivery. My concern with third-party delivery is once the third-party delivery companies own the consumer, we, we no longer have control. They're just going to go to an app whether you're there or not or, or order. Exactly. So what I want to do is, what I'm working with all my clients on is how are we working to do whatever we can to still own our guests? Um, how do we get them back inside the four walls of the business? How do we get them back to us through the apps? I'd be sitting with my third-party delivery companies and say, how are we creating bounce back? How are we creating return? And being creative because they want that as well. But once those, once those, and I don't see them as delivery companies, I see them as marketing machines. 
and they are brilliant and they are tech companies and they're built to scale. Um, and they're some not, not profitable as we know. So it's, it's a different model. Um, but I want to own our guest. So I love the hand, handwritten. Um, I ordered from a place on uh, a Greek restaurant on the Danforth the other day. And um, it was snowing up, a major snowstorm, but it was snowy and got they set extra desserts, handwritten note. And I posted this on social and I called the restaurant. I said, who, who did this? Like, and I said, this Greek gentleman said, Who are you? What do you want? And I said, This is <laughs> I'm a guest for you every time. But I come to the airport, I'm, I'm coming to see you. It's one of the major staples. But they're still doing the extras that we started with. Don't forget that you need your guests back inside your four walls. We are not delivery industry. We are a bricks and mortar industry. The guests need to come back inside, and we need to find the driver to do that. It's a great point, and that's something I hear with a lot of operators when I'm talking to them. You know, it's the question: Who owns the customer? And with those third-party apps, you know, we know where that's going. So. So I think you're absolutely right in, in, in saying, you know, how, stressing how important it is for the restaurant to own the customer. One of the big ones stopped taking my calls. So I want to see which one of the big three, but we bring in my clients and they're like, Matt, we're done with you. Like you're disrupted. And I'm like, I think you guys, you're great, but this is my home. Like, these operators are my home and I need to do anything you can to protect them. For sure. So let's shift our focus a little bit um, on leadership. Um, you know, through this tumultuous time, I think there's been more pressure than ever on leaders um, to, to somewhat, you know, obviously to be a strong leader and to keep everybody uh, motivated and, and strong through this pandemic, but also to be a more empathetic leader and to be a more compassionate leader. How do you think leadership is changing um, as a result of the pandemic? I think there was already a lot of talk on leadership having to change prior to the pandemic, but I think, again, um, the pandemic exacerbated this whole area. And now we're, I think the expectations for leaders are greater than ever. How do you think that's changed what leaders need to do moving forward in this new reality? Yeah, I, I think one thing that I would coach any leader, what I call hospitality entrepreneurs, just to really take a step back and recognize what you just went through. So whether it be you know, the months and months of consistent crashing waves and pressure. And, and a lot of people are, you know, as a leader, we feel that we need to show up and say, we know the way, we know the answer, we know the path. But I think one of the things that's changed in leadership is um, the best teams, the leaders driving a co-creation model, a co-creation conversation. So rather than feeling that we need to be the answer, um, I think a lot of leaders are becoming not coaches, um, more coach-like, as the author Michael Bungay standard says. But we realize that it's not our, we don't have all the answers about the opportunity and we can't just force our way forward for the next six, 12, 36 months. So I think the biggest piece now is how do we step back and how do we support our people, number one, in our energy? How do we continue to build trust? But if we want to build momentum for any team, independent restaurant or national chain, we need to get more people, we get everybody on the team rowing in the same direction. And we can really own any market condition. So I think the first thing that, I don't think it's changed, um, but it's becoming more of a requirement is the leadership can't solely be plugged into the, the owner, the general manager. If it's solely plugged into everyone's feeding into that person for decision, um, it'll create disconnection with the people that want their own you know, authority inside the business, and it'll, it'll also crush. So I think we have to step back and say the way forward is together, and you're not alone, and you don't need to make the decisions alone. That's the title of our book, You Can't Do It Alone. We need support and we need a team momentum in the direction of our goals. Um, I think the other side, as we talked about, is how do we be, how do we focus on development and how do we coach and support our people? 
So are you creating space and time? The biggest thing I hear from VPs, regional managers, directors, GMs, or managers, what they want is space and time to create clarity. Am I doing well? How can I grow and develop? How do we support people? So coaching before looked like, come to me and I'm going to tell you what to do. Coaching now is really changing to be, how do I be here and support you? And you drive the conversation. I need to listen more. I need to understand you more. I think the one thing, if you're a leader out there, is I strongly encourage you to be carving out time to be at service of your people. Because what they want to trust you, to trust the industry, to continue to feel safe at work, the more space and time you can create for them, whatever that looks like for you, can dramatically change. And then it is, I, I don't know if anybody knows Jack Welsh, he was considered the top CEO of the last century. And Jack Welsh said, and this is something where I got a chance to meet Jack, and he said in, in this conference, he said, it's your job as a leader to ensure that every single employee knows where they stand and what's expected. Um, and there's some, there'd be a longer story there that we share in workshops, but it's our job to meet expected of our people what success looks like. So maybe we need to get them running. And if you can't document for, for your people what how to be successful in the goals, three bullet points, and then they do their job, they do ops. We need to push them in the direction and they will respond and respond to strength. And those are different conversations. Before it was profitability, cost, P&L. Let's get the answer. Tomorrow, let's do it together. Let's support and let's make sure there's absolute clarity. Interesting. I know in one of my conversations with you recently, you spoke about the importance of vulnerability um, in, in leaders. Can we touch a little bit on that? And what do you mean by that? Yeah, the one thing, and we've been coaching on the subject for about five years of one thing that's in, in our book called Vulnerability-Based Leadership. Um, and that goes back to my point a little bit I was talking about. And people have resistance. Vulnerability to, to a lot of people sounds like weakness. And one of my favorite authors, and I've got a bit of a crush on Renee Brown, so she's, she's somebody to look up to, but you know, reading all of Renee's stuff and studying Renee and, and getting as, as much of, of her content as vulnerability really is strength. So before it's like, you know, we have the answer, you have to be strong, we have to get it right. Um, but I'd be honest, a lot of the times where I, I create connection with my coaching clients, it's, it's genuine vulnerability to share. Um, I understand how you feel. Going back into your restaurant and saying, this has been hard for me too. Um, and so this has been, the, COVID for myself has been the hardest time in my life. It has been the most challenging. I've struggled with depression. I've struggled with anxiety that's been an issue. Uh, I've struggled with my marriage and my relationship. I've struggled with my vision for my companies and for a period of time. And it's been hard for me. It's been hard for you, but just creating connection where it doesn't have to be perfect as a leader. Um, people don't want to see perfect. They want to see real. Um, and that for me, my, where that came from for me is I, as a, the first five years as a coach, I had a couple of mentors and I was trying to be them. And they're, they're more rigid and I'm not an aggressive person. They're aggressive personalities, dominant. And I was trying to be them and it created disconnection and it wasn't genuine. When I started to be vulnerable and share, I have a learning disability, I have depression, I have anxiety, I have a family that's been exposed to addiction my entire life and something that I had to get away from in my early years. Just sharing some of those pieces and there's lots more conversations. But if we can't be vulnerable and honest and real with our people, if you're looking to create retention, they're just we don't build the foundation of trust. And trust is the foundation of, of any team. Um, That's really interesting. It's really interesting because, as you say, I think most leaders are afraid to show that side because for fear to uh, to be appearing, like you said, weak. And you know how how do uh, employees respect you if they feel like you're you're a weak person? Um, so I think that that shift in mentality is is really really interesting. Um, do you think 
how effective do you think most people will be at showing that vulnerability? I mean, is that something that needs to come over a long, long period of time? How do you how do you stress that to leaders? And I think it looks so. We there's you know four core different personality types. So I'd work with a, a leader and, and we identify what's you know, if we really wanted to go deep into this. It's, it's not a bandit. We don't go if you went from being you know not you know just who you are to being completely open and vulnerable. You're gonna just get a crap with your people. They're gonna run and not understand it. So I think it is. It is a process, but what we often do, and it's just small, small progress in, in the direction of just being more real, and it creates more authenticity, authenticity for the leaders, and they love it. But I think it is small steps, and often it's looking at examples like Brene Brown's TED Talk is one of the most watched TED Talks. If you want to just hear a little bit, Brene Brown started this conversation a decade ago, so when she uncovered vulnerability, she was great. She's, she was trying to prove right as a researcher and she just, it, it rocked her so much that that's the core of connection and results that, that that's, and this is the person who really started the popularity of the conversation. Um, but for, for myself, my goal is to go out and I, I overshare with intention to, to show what it can look like. I've, I've cried dozens of times on stage. I, I have not, and I didn't see it coming. I don't, I'm not an actor, so I can't do it on purpose. And I'm not, <laughs> um, it just happened. I've, you know, I've shared um, pieces of my leadership career. I've shared my failures. Um, and whatever that can do for a leader to, should they choose to, it's not right for everybody. But those that choose to take this direction, um, I've, I've always seen a positive result. And one of the one of Canada's best run restaurant groups, largest restaurant groups we've worked with, and I proposed this concept five years ago. And he said, no, not doing that. That's, that's completely crazy. Uh, as a bunch of driver personality men and women. And, and now I would say they're one of the most vulnerable groups that I've had a chance to work with. And it's, um, they also are uh, on the top 50 employers list, one of the best culture companies I've ever had exposure to. Amazing. Well, there's so much I think that uh, we can all take away from, from what you were just saying. So thank you for that. Um, taking a look at the industry and where we're at today and, you know, the challenges that leaders have and the challenges that staffing issues provide. And I, I think, um, as I said earlier, the, the pandemic has really given everybody a pause to examine where they want to be moving forward. Are you worried at all that the industry, um, you know, will have a really tough time about getting people back into the industry as employees? Do you, do you feel that like we're at a pivotal stage right now? I, I, I absolutely am fearful. If we don't change how we attract and the whole track, attract mechanism. So if like if you go, anybody here goes and posts their job ad on Indeed, by the time we're done this podcast, if you're not paying for placement, you're going to be on page 28. You're not going to be able to be found, let alone in the restaurant space, let alone in all retail opportunities that are out there. So I think the, the way that we would break this down is how do we, if our first interaction with the tracking, the tracking staff is our job ad, we need to completely reshape our job ads, make it about the candidate. We need to be very strategic in where we place our job ads. The other thing, the biggest thing that I'll share with people, the number one thing that's going to change your restaurant's ability, a city like Toronto where I am now, there are enough staff in your restaurant. If you don't have staff, they're just working somewhere else right now we can win that fight. The number one thing that will change your hiring results is your filtering mechanism for applicants. So worst, most operators are still, I got a resume, I'm gonna call them once if they don't show up to my interview, I'm moving on. That game is over. We need to pursue, you know, attract, reward people for showing up to introduce whatever your strategy is, but we're coaching most of our clients to follow up with every qualified applicant three to five times at a minimum and create a scoreboard and dashboard. Wow, that's a huge change, isn't it? And, but it's and is it the, the challenge is it's not a system challenge. It's our psychology around what should be needed that people allow people to come 
context. The game change. So if we don't let go of the past and we still figure more in control, the potential hire has the leverage now. We do not. And we need to look at they have the leverage and choice. So we need to act differently. Um, our team uh, on the third-party inventory saw so extreme girls, and we ended up short staffed. So we did we changed our filtering with five follow-ups, and we also offered a gift, we offered a gift card, $20 Visa gift card just to show up to me. Completely different. It was told in our filtering calls, and we filled with the best quality employees that we've ever had. We stacked group interviews. People are saying we can't fire staff. We're getting people to count inventory at six in the morning at a hundred plus this be a drone. So if we, if we get people with kegs and put them on scales, I just create and we have a different retention mechanism. But how are you going to get people in your interview? And then what's your story of why they should stay? But there's a way to fix the re- attract model for, for yourself. We're going to share some stuff together, hopefully through your post this podcast to, to help people with this. But um, if anybody needs help on the attracting side, we've got a five-step process that if you double down on, I promise, I promise we'll change your results in the next two weeks. Well, that's fabulous. And, and I, I guess, Matt, as a way to wrap up our interview, I know our time is running out. Um, we've all learned various lessons from the past two years. I, I think, you know, we can't walk away without at least one or two good lessons, and hopefully we apply those moving forward. What would be your biggest lessons from the pandemic? Uh, and it could be personally or professionally or both. Yeah, um, I think, you know, if I really want to look for myself, um, I think mental health has been something that we've, we've talked about um, and it's been a conversation, uh, but one thing that has allowed me to make it and, and be in, in the right state to show up here and for my clients and more importantly for myself and my family and my beautiful children is really how to self-care. You know, I, I was pre-pandemic, my needs were met by being in service of my clients. If I wasn't helping you, I didn't have value. So I would work more to feel that I had more value as, as, as a it left me drained and empty. It, it had me show up exhausted at home. And the biggest shift for me is um, having hours don't equate value, um, impact, presence. How do I be fully present with you for this podcast, not thinking about what I'm doing next? So I think for a lot of us, this conversation is active. So just how do we take care of our mental health and our self-care um, is one thing. And, and we're doing a lot of talking on that. And not just let's talk about it, what are actual tactics. Um, I've invested as a massive amount of money into therapy and programs and, and master therapists, to, not just for myself, but to get coaching. Mm-hmm. I think if we don't care, so take, if we don't take care of ourselves, we can't take care of others. We will burn out. And I, I just want to share, we've all been through an incredibly difficult almost two years. Um, just some permission to, to take some time for self. And the other side, not to, not to shameless plug, but we can't do it alone. On our book, like just my side, my, my business is nothing without my team. This is nothing about the partners that have trusted us to this stage. If you want to fight and make it to the other side of this, um, the two of us or anybody listening to this, we need to find a way to find people who believe what you believe, believe in your vision, believe in, in what you're looking to accomplish. It's not just a job. Toronto, Canada, North America does not need another restaurant on baby doors. If we get people to buy into your concept, to what you're looking to create and experience, um, you can't do it alone. We need to engage others. Those are great words. And it's it's great to see that there is more awareness of mental health um, issues in, in the marketplace. And I hope that's not something that's just going to kind of peter out when, when we get back uh, to regular business. I hope that stays constant and that employers really um, take more stock in what they're offering their employees on that front. Any last parting words from you or advice to operators who are struggling through this time. And uh, I know January is, is a blah month for a lot of people at the best of times. And 
we're still in this pandemic. So I know it is very tough for a lot of people to get that, um, you know, excitement back into their life, but uh, any parting advice? Yeah, I think just for the next 90 days to six months, um, we want we, we need to fight as an industry, as a collective, just like what we've learned through here, we really were positions, and I don't want to fight the decisions that were made based on lockdowns and closures, but we positioned poorly and, and as an industry, we received a lot of pain. And now is the time if we stay scrappy, if we fight, all of us, no matter how big your operation, fight to the, the maximum success that you deserve, fight to keep your doors open, fight to attract people, fight to create a great culture, fight to support yourself in, in your self-care. The, the tactics will follow. Um, you know, for people that follow up, we have tons of work. We, we can give you all the tactics, but we don't have an intention. Why are we getting up every morning, putting our feet on the ground, passion and saying, I, I still going to keep going. I'm still, uh, we didn't come this far as an industry, to only come this far. It's a quote that we put out last week. Let's fight. And I, I do believe in three to six months, we'll have more clarity around what our industry recovery looks like. Um, but for us, rather than head up looking three years out, it's, you know, this isn't a you know, normal coaching advice. We got to go. We got to make the next 90 days to 180 days work for us in our operation and most importantly, our people. Well, I think those are great words to end on. So I, I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us this morning. And I'm also looking forward to a working relationship as uh, we start to publish more of your columns throughout uh, our magazine over the coming year. So, um, so thank you very much for, for your time and good luck and uh, keep fighting, I guess. Thank you. We appreciate you joining us for this episode of the Table Talk podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love for you to rate and review our show. Also, make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button. For additional resources related to today's episode, please visit our website, foodserviceandhospitality.com. Until next time.